You're listening to The Fish Dish, brought to you by Eat Wisconsin Fish, a campaign of the Wisconsin Sea Grant Program. Are you fish curious, or are you a fish expert who wants to learn even more about Wisconsin's fisheries and cooking fish? We'll give you the latest dish on fish. Your hosts are Sharon Moen and Marie Zwickoff. Two Two friends friends who have been been working working for Sea Grant seemingly forever and who know a thing or two about fish. But that's forever in a good way. Sharon is a food fish outreach coordinator. And Marie is a science communicator. I'm excited to talk about today's topic. Why is that? Because honestly, until this past summer, I didn't really know much about Wisconsin's Mississippi River commercial fisheries. I'm happy we can talk about the Mississippi River and my adventure there in this episode. I'm also looking forward to the fishalicious part of our show. We're cooking an easy Eat Wisconsin Fish recipe using catfish. It's called Fish Fillets with Lime. I'm looking forward to that too. But first, why did you drive to the far southwest corner of Wisconsin? Well, since the pandemic, travel restrictions were lifted. I've been working my way around the state meeting with commercial fishers of Lake Superior and Lake Michigan, as well as food fish farmers, to get a feel for how Wisconsin Sea Grant can work with them to solve challenges. Several times, people, mainly from the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, asked if I had talked to the Mississippi River fishers. I was able to arrange a trip to learn more about this fishery and the people behind it in 2023. I met with several fishers, including Michael Valley, a fourth-generation commercial fisherman who owns Valley Fish and Cheese, a store in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. Michael's business is a bit different from others that we featured before. Why don't you tell us about that, Sharon? Well, it was interesting being there. It was so different than the Great Lakes fisheries, where our fishers catch Lake Whitefish and Cisco and Lake Trout. Down there in the Mississippi River, the commercial fisheries concentrate on what are known as rough fish. And we have interviewed Mike, and he'll tell you more about that soon. But rough fish are generally the non-sports target fish. So instead of walleye, he would be going after things like carp and buffalo and sheep's head. Mm -hmm. And then the, the equipment is really different, too. People like Mike and the other fishers down there use hoop nets, a few set nets, but that's very different from the big boats and the trap nets and the, the gill nets that are used in the Great Lakes. And then also the way they process is different. The fish are so huge down there that they're able to stake them up in chunks as opposed to fillets. And so that was kind of interesting to look into the smoke room and to see these big chunks of fish. And then the regulations are different too. So because they're rough fish, there's no quota on how many fish they can catch. They can catch as many carp and sheep's head and buffalo they want to. They oh, can wow. process. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I thought that was really interesting. It's like the Wild West as opposed to the more regulated fisheries of the Great Lakes. Michael sells smoked fish, meat jerky, bologna, summer sausage, and good old Wisconsin cheese. He's also diversified into selling handmade duck decoys and wooden painted signs. Let's hear from Mike about how he got into the business. Got into it through my father and my grandfather, who were in the same business. They were 99% wholesale. I'm... 99% retail. Switched in about 1988-89 and that's when we went pretty much full-time into the store and dropped most of the wholesale markets. So in the smoke fish end of it we do carp, buffalo, bullheads, catfish, sturgeon, perch, probably forgetting a couple but and out of all of those the carp is the number one seller. Second probably is catfish, third would be the perch and then the other products that you know we make catfish jerky and perch jerky Snapping turtle jerky, alligator jerky, you know, all different kinds of jerkies. 
but catfish and perch, as far as the fish end of it, those are, are jerky sellers. Make catfish bologna, three different varieties of catfish bologna. Sell a lot of that. Handle lots of snapping turtles. I make snapping turtle jerky, snapping turtle beer stick, snapping turtle summer sausage. You can make anything out of it, but usually I'm out of it because <laughs> it's such a pain in the butt to make. But we usually always, as a rule, will always have fresh frozen turtle meat, you know. So we usually always have that on hand. People want something unique. I'd say 95% of people, they're like, oh my God, is this good? You know, man, this is really good. Mike also sells fresh fish fillets. He described the other species that he catches. Buffalo fish, carp, suckers, sturgeon, hackleback or sand sturgeon, cannot take rock sturgeon, bullheads, flathead catfish, channel catfish, quillback, oh, sheephead, the most important one. Yeah, sheep's head, which is freshwater drum. Mike, a jack of all trades and a jovial man of diverse skills, gave us sheephead samples from his smokehouse, and we also got to watch him base trays and trays of these fish in the smoker. I encourage listeners to go to the Fish Dish Episodes Extras page to see what deliciousness looks like. I'm sorry you won't be able to smell the rich and tangy aroma of fish in the smoker through the internet. Now, his smokehouse was attached to his processing building, which was interesting, and it's right next door to the store where he sells the product, and he's 100% on-site sales. He gets a lot of tourist traffic there, and then a lot of locals come to buy his product, too, and it was so tasty. Does the smell of the smokehouse kind of waft into the store? It does. I don't know if you've ever been near a smokehouse, but wow, it's just so aromatic and delicious smelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked in a building that had a smokehouse in the basement, and you just walk in there, and oh, I, I loved coming to work every day because it <laughs> smells so good. <laughs> My smokehouse, it's all wood, 100% wood-fired. I use no-sodium nitrates. It's all natural, high-quality spices. And most people are, when they're, you know, let's say you're smoking a carp. So tonight when you're eating that carp, I just guarantee you're going to go, oh, my God. Because it's not just salt and water. There's probably seven or eight different seasonings in there. Lots of brown sugar. And the salt I'm using is high grade. It's the best salt you can, you know, it's just one step, a little bit above. I cut all the wood myself. I have two other guys that help. I'm picking on wood. If there's any mold on it, it goes out. I use pig nut hickory and shag bark hickory. I will mix a little bit of fruit wood in, apple, pear, plum. Mike has a Facebook page for his business, Valley Fish and Cheese. If you look at it, it won't take you long to see Mike holding up some big fish that he caught. Mike agrees that they're big, but they're not as big as they used to be. When I was 16 years old raising nuts with my father, we had two catfish in one net, and they each weighed 96 pounds apiece. And I haven't topped that since. You know, we get a lot of fish in this catfish in the 60s, 70s, 50, 60, 70. It's nothing to get 25 a day, over 25 pounds. But the big, big ones, they're not as prevalent as they were 75, 100 years ago, obviously. I've had some huge, humongous sturgeon out here, probably 300 pounds. We can't take those. And obviously you can't get it in the boat, so you've got to release it in the water. And it's a real pain because they're dangerous. (laughs) They're extremely strong. We've had some fish that we never did see that were unbelievably huge. 
So I can kind of attest to the unbelievably huge types of fish that he still catches. Not only were these their big chunks of carp and sheep's head and the smoker, but at the bottom of a boat I visited down there in Prairie du Chien, there were these things that looked like zebra mussel shells or shells of clams. And so I asked the guy in the boat, well, are you, are you pulling up mussels too? And he's like, no, those are the scales of the fish. I'm like, wow, they kind of look like big toenails. Oh, or, I know, it was kind of like gross. Big, like big toe toenails? Yes, Because yes. <laughs> up here in the Great Lakes, I'm used to fish with like smaller, more delicate. Some of the fishermen up here call it glitter, fish glitter. Fish glitter, yeah. yeah. But down there, it's like, no, it's like big, ugly toenails. <laughs> Huge fish. And then I also want to mention that just because there's no quota doesn't mean that there's not a sustainable fishery there. So people like Mike have to be accountable to the DNR every month and report their catch. And they are monitored. So it's not when I said Wild West earlier, maybe that was an overstatement. There are some regulations that they have to follow and seasons that they have to follow. Now I know what I need. I'm self-sustainable in what I need. I know I can only clean four to 800 pounds in a day, so that's what I catch. I could set nets and catch two or 3,000, no problem. But I'm only catching sustainable, like, you know, knowing what I'm gonna need for that week or that day. Every day when we commercial fish, we've gotta write down every fish we catch, even the ones we throw back. So you've gotta keep number of pounds, whatever you caught, and then at the end of each month, you've gotta file a report to the DNR for every kind of gear. It's a lot of book work on top of, yeah. Like many of the commercial fishers we've featured on The Fish Dish, Mike has a challenge finding workers to help him. There's no problem selling a good product. The problem is making it, finding enough time and the help. That's the number one problem because it is all very, very time consuming. How often are you out on the boat? Anymore, not very often. Probably two days a week now. Used to fish five days a week when we had help. The spring and the fall, like this spring I fished probably five days a week. So when I was down visiting Mike and his wife, he talked about what he used to do in the river, and that was clamming. He grew up as a clammer, and just as a FYI, freshwater clams are the same as freshwater mussels. Scientists normally refer to them as mussels, but the clammers refer to them as clams. So on the outside of the processing facility, Mike had, actually the garage, I think, Mike had some old clamming crowfoot boards, and I got him to explain how they were used. But first I want to say one of the most colorful chapters in the history of Prairie du Chien was its association with the freshwater pearl industry. It was actually called the freshwater pearl capital of the U.S. from about 1900 to 1920. And during that time, clamming and button cutting was almost as important to the community and its economy as the fur trade had been in the earlier times. Hmm. So the bread and butter product was the buttons, pearlesque buttons that became fashionable. But the high value product was pearls, which were really rare. So freshwater pearls come in many different colors and their colors reflect the color of the mother shells. So like washboard clams usually have pink pearls and wavy backs create pearls in shades of blue, green, and lavender. So they're very valuable if you found a good one. Rare though. And at one time, there were 27 pearl buyers in Prairie du Chien alone. I thought that was really interesting. And then in summer, tent cities and whole families would be gathering shells there along the banks of of the Mississippi River. And grocery boats would be selling supplies up and down the river, too. So it's not just oysters that have pearls, huh? I didn't know. Correct. Like freshwater mussels had pearls. They can. 
So they were using John boats and these curved foot boards that were fitted with small short links like grappling hooks were attached and they would drag them across the mud bottom of the clam bed. They caught in the open shells of the feeding clams and mussels and then the clams reacted by closing their shells and then they pulled them up. Around World War One, the industry shut down because the Japanese cultured pearl industry grew. So the, they got all the buttons and pearls they needed from this... Oysters. O- yeah, <laughs> oyster over in Japan. But then in 1960s or so, the clamming industry had a revival because they were using, and this is where Mike got involved when he was a, a lad, in the 60s clamming. And those clams or mussels were used to seed the cultured oysters in Japan uh-huh. because then the pearls would be super clear. Because oh. uh, so they, they were forming around the grit of another kind of pearlescent grit. Pearl. Very, very pure pearl. Like, then they give for like tens of thousands of dollars. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know, these perfect pearls. It became a big industry, but then the industry declined again because of overfishing and changes to the river and changes in the way pearls are cultured. So there's no clamming industry now, but it was a huge deal for 20 years and then another decade in the 60s. It was really interesting to talk to Mike about his days of clamming, mm-hmm. his days. I may digress into <laughs> into more about mussels. There's about 50 species of mussels in Wisconsin, and a healthy mixed population still lives in the rivers of St. Croix, the Mississippi, and a few other places. And that's where you can find, like, I love their names, like fat muckets, pimplebacks, and monkey faces and heel splitters. So there are a whole bunch of different mussels. And one place we visited on this trip was the Genoa National Fish Hatchery, which I encourage our listeners to go to if they are in the area, because they are doing some restoration on some endangered mussel species there, which I think is really interesting. And they are seeding the Upper Mississippi River and the St. Croix River with some of these baby mussels that they're growing. There's still mussels in this state. So in addition to clamming back in the day, Mike and his dad and granddad also fished a lot. So he's been connected to the river his entire life. He could not imagine a job doing anything else than what he's doing now. And his favorite part is, of course, time out in the boat, going out away from all his customers and uh, just being there on the boat. He rarely takes help anymore. So again, the workforce is a little short. It's just him and his boat in the dawn, and he's in his slice of heaven. Just being out on the water, it's like a, a relief, you know. <laughs> you know, it's 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 nice just to get out there. And catching the fish is fun. I enjoy it. Well, it is in my blood. You know, I, I was born and raised, and that's what I did as a hunting, fishing, and trapping. That was my life. I didn't play sports. I was not good in school. <laughs> as a kid, my dad, thank God, taught me how to knit. We made all of our own nets. Everything was made. Even... The respect out of that in today is making your own net, setting that net, catching that fish, selling that, the complete circle, I call it. That's pretty important versus just going and getting a net and setting it. But the rivers, is, I mean, as much as I've been involved in it and seen it, and it would be hard just to walk away, you know. Right? As we get ready to segue into the fishalicious part of our podcast, let's hear from Michael about his favorite fish to catch and his favorite way to cook it netting flathead catfish and we fish downriver out of Cassville it's about 35 miles downriver and we'll trailer down there and usually as a rule we'll set Labor Day weekend and the best month for flathead catfish is October 
they feed up really crazy in October. They just eat, 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 indulge themselves. And usually about the end of October, first week in November, they're done, they quit eating. So when that water temperature reaches about 38 degrees and it starts to crust over on ice, they're done, they quit. A flathead only eats live things. It does not eat anything stinky or rotten. And it reflects in the meat. And it's, as far as eating, I mean, that's one of the best fish there is to eat. Once you get the red off and get, get the, all the red meat off, that's huge. So I do what's called a select. That's where all the red, all the fat, anything, gone. And cut up in bite-sized chunks. And I, that's my number one seller. People request that 10 to one. But I'll take a beer, a light beer, so 75% beer, and I'll take a little bit of seasoned salt, some sweet basil, a little rosemary, a little garlic, and stir that up good, two hours in the beer, take it out of that, and bread it, and fry it. The num there's two things for frying fish is number one, never ever pre-bread more than one minute ahead. That's huge. The hotter it is, the worse it is. Second, make sure when you drop your fish in the oil, they're sizzling. So many people will take a thermometer and it'll get up to 340, 350, and then, okay, it's ready, and then load it down with fish. Well, you've wrecked your fish. I use peanut oil, I'm religious on using peanut oil, and I'm frying at four and a quarter. So I'm frying hot, it's half the time in the oil. And if you don't want to use beer, milk is just 2% milk is good, or buttermilk is good, but it does make a world of difference to marinate. All right. I know someday we're going to have to fry fish for this podcast, but it's not today. <laughs> yes. We thought about a recipe for fried fish, but it still is hard for me to take a beautiful piece of fish and deep fry it, like bat beer batter it and deep fry it, as is the Wisconsin tradition. So today we're going to be using a recipe from the Eat Wisconsin Fish website that works for pretty much any fish. But we're, again, using catfish today, and it'll be a filet of fish with lime. And the fish, as we speak, at this moment, is sitting in a pan in the refrigerator in a bath of milk. So why don't we say a little bit about why we're doing the milk? The reason we're soaking the fish in milk for about 20 minutes is because catfish sometimes comes to the market with a bit of a mud taste or a little bit of like fishy flavor that doesn't set well with some consumers. And so that's because there's algae and other things growing in the water. It's not unhygienic water, it's just what fresh water has. And so the taste is a compound called geosmin and they're produced naturally by microorganisms in fresh water. But if you soak your fish overnight in milk or like for 20 minutes like we're doing, you can get rid of a lot of that fishy flavor. And so that's what I tell anybody who is thinking their fish is a little off flavored or too fishy. It's like soak it in milk or vinegar. You can do that too. But then you pour the milk away down the sink and then you have some lighter, fresher, perkier tasting fish. Okay. Well, let's go cook our perky fish. Yes. <laughs> Sounds good. Now it's time for the fish olicious part of our podcast, where we discuss fish recipes, which, by the way, you can find on the Eat Wisconsin Fish website, which is eatwisconsinfish.org. Today, we're cooking catfish fillets with lime. I am chopping the pistachios. And... Uh, 
They're nice and fresh, so they're jumping. <laughs> they're jumpers. So the pistachios are going to be a garnish for this recipe. And what you need is four fillets. Well, we have three, but they're kind of big. Uh, half cup of flour. We're using almond flour. Some balsamic vinegar, fresh lime juice, cold butter cut into one inch pieces, some sliced scallions. Oh yeah, we'll have to do that next. Mm -hmm. And then the pistachios and some oil. Yes, and I've never put nuts on fish before, so this will be new for me. <laughs> <laughs> I've not made this recipe before. So we're heating up some peanut oil on the stove top and I had to buy a new stove. It's beautiful. Yeah, my 14 year old oven finally died and it was gonna cost too much to fix it. So we have a new range, but the stovetop burners are hotter than what I'm used to. So I'm still getting used to like the different <laughs> scale of it. And that does make a difference. You want your oil to be sizzling so that like, I think we said it on another different episode, of the fish dish. You want it to sizzle. If you drop a drop of water in it or put a wooden spoon in it, it should be have bubbles coming around the wooden spoon to fry it. And we got the fish out of the refrigerator and we drained off the milk and so I'm about to dredge it in the almond flour and put it in the pan to saute. So while the catfish is in the pan, Marie, have you ever eaten catfish before? I have. I had a great uncle and aunt who lived on a lake, and they pretty much taught me how to fish. My aunt liked eating catfish. My uncle, not so much, but he taught me how to skin a catfish. Ooh, how do you do that? Uh, he had some t contraption that you just, like, hook the skin to, and then you pull. Then you pull. Oh, kind of like a burbot. Pull it off. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I remember I liked it when they cooked it, but... In later years, I tried to cook it myself, and I wasn't that impressed with it. So maybe I didn't soak it in the milk or something, but it did not work for me. But, so I'm hoping this will change my mind. Well, it's like the most farmed fish in the United States, and definitely popular in more southern areas, but I think because we live here in Wisconsin, walleye and bass and some of the other fish are considered more of a delicacy. But I like catfish already. But I can see why people prefer walleye and perch. And also, while the fish is cooking, I wanted to talk about a study that was done by North Carolina Sea Grant. The name of the story in the newsletter where I found it, it's in their Coast Watch newsletter. It's called, Who's Afraid of New Seafood? Packed with 16 grams of healthy protein per serving, seasoned catfish skin chips make, oh, yeah. <laughs> make a tasty treat. No, we're not doing it because we have fillets. We don't have catfish skin. But you can eat the skin off of catfish. And what they did, they did a scientific study with two by two inch squares of skin. And they did a taste test with panels of brave people <laughs> and they battered the skin in eggs and flour and then air fried each piece for 12 minutes and then they seasoned the finished chips with one of three flavors lemon pepper paprika or barbecue so they had two panels of 115 consumers each evaluated the chips and provided 
feedback, including whether they would purchase the product if it became commercially available. And the verdict was... Dun, 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 drum roll. <laughs> <laughs> they liked the barbecue and lemon pepper the most. Those were the most promising for consumers to buy this product. The paprika scored the lowest. Consumers responded even more favorably to the catfish skin chips when they knew the product was a source of healthy protein and played a role in reducing food waste and increasing seafood sustainability. It sounds like uh, catfish skin is a thing. Yeah, and I really like the way that the fisheries and people who care about the fisheries are developing new ideas for using 100% of the fish. There's actually a project going on called 100% Great Lakes Fish that is being modeled after what they're doing in Iceland to use all parts of the fish. And I think we talked about that on a different episode of The Fish Dish. So yeah, farm-raised catfish accounted for 51% of all the aquaculture food fish sales in the United States in 2018. So, wow, it's... It's a big industry. Yeah. Not here in Wisconsin so much, but... Definitely in the southern states. So maybe we'll see catfish skin chips at the grocery store <laughs> soon. <laughs> Keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> We've taken the fish out of the pan and poured off the oil. And then we've added back to the pan the balsamic vinegar and the lime juice. And so now we're bringing it to a boil. Yep, and then we're going to reduce that a little bit and then add the butter one chunk at a time, cut and whisk it in there. And you whisk. (laughs) And the nice thing about having the vinegar and the lime juice in the pan is that it cleans the bottom of the pan for you, like the stuff that's stuck onto the bottom, all that good, crispy (laughs) (laughs) fish stuff gets cleaned off when you do this. The sauce is brown. And Sharon was just saying it kind of looks like a mushroom sauce. Then what do we do after the butter's all melted? Then we assemble our masterpiece. Ah. Yes. Okay. We will do an assembly. For pictures of this creation, please visit us at eatwisconsinfish.org or at the Wisconsin Sea Grant website under the Fish Dish Podcast. The episode extras page. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> bon appetit. I love the sauce. Well, yeah, with all that butter. I know. <laughs> all that butter. Lime and butter. <laughs> the lime kind of comes out first, but then with the nuts, yeah, it's like salty, sour, but... It's very tasty. Yeah, it tastes almost like a red meat. Yeah, it makes yeah. A fish tastes like a red meat, not like a fish. <laughs> so that fishy flavor was taken away maybe by not only the sauce but the little bath it had in the milk bath yeah i'm putting some more pistachios up but the nuts give it a nice texture you know so it's not all like mouth mealy <laughs> right no i agree with you there like the mouth feel is good for this too it has a little bit of a crunch i'm gonna have to try it try putting nuts on more of my meals <laughs> I add nuts to salads sometimes. Do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I'll have to try this again. Put it on my list of uh, dinners to make. Well, this experience sure changed my mind about eating catfish. Another thing I wanted to mention is that although the catfish skin taste study appeared in a North Carolina Sea Grant publication, 
The organizations that actually performed it were Louisiana State University and the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Southern Regional Research Center. That's it for this episode of The Fish Dish. Thanks goes to Mike Valley and to Bonnie Willison with Sea Grant for her behind-the-scenes work on this episode. That was her asking Mike how often he goes out in his boat. Thank you for listening. Everywhere I go, I always want to be in my city. On so did see. On so did see.